This morning is a special morning for me um, as I have four students here that were from my student ministry at Hillcrest, Sam and Matthew and Race and Danielle um, leading us in worship. Didn't they do a great job? And so I praise God just to see um, them again. Um, it's all like we weren't far away. And just to see how God is using you guys is a tremendous blessing to me. Uh, and John, I know you're in here somewhere, and we are continuing to pray for you, and you deserve the day off, so enjoy. Um, this morning, I would ask you as we begin, what is it that you are most afraid of? What is it that you are most afraid of? Are you most afraid that something's going to go wrong in your family? Are you most afraid that maybe one day your children might rebel? Or maybe you're afraid that your children have rebelled and they are the prodigal that will never come home. Or maybe you're most afraid of failure. However it is that you've framed up success in your own mind, however it is that you've framed up and defined success for your own life, Maybe you're afraid that you're not going to reach that threshold. Maybe you're afraid you're not going to meet that standard. Maybe you're afraid you're going to fail as a father. Maybe you're afraid that you're going to fail as a wife. Maybe you're afraid that you're not going to have the job success that your ambition had longed for. Maybe you're not going to have everything you've ever dreamed of. Maybe you're afraid that you're not going to be able to give your kids more than you had. Or maybe you're afraid because right now you are in the midst of a violent storm in your life. Maybe right now in your, in your life the winds are blowing and the waves are crashing and the boat is rocking. And if you were honest this morning, you'd say your boat's taking in water faster than you can bail it out. And your greatest fear is, is that the storm won't end. Your greatest fear is, is that at some point your boat is going to capsize and it's all going to be over. This morning what I think we're going to see is that our fear, whatever that is, wherever that is in our lives, reveals something about our hearts. Our fear speaks to the nature and to the character of our faith. This morning we're going to continue and finish up Matthew chapter 8. If you will stand with me. As we read God's word together. In Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9 as we're going through this. Remember that Matthew's goal here is to continue to establish for us the authority of Jesus. The supreme authority and sufficiency of his control and rule as the Messiah. So read with me. We'll begin this morning in verse 23 and read through verse 34. God's word says, and when he got into the boat his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, and coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about our passage this morning is verse 23. And verse 23 at first glance may not seem impressive to you until you remember that verse 23 follows verses 18 through 22. Remember what Jesus talked about. Remember what we talked about last week. Admittedly, last week were hard words. It was a hard sermon for us, right? That Jesus tells us that if we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to, to follow after him, if we're going to get in his boat, we better count the costs. And so Jesus tells us that if we're going to be his disciples, we better be prepared for hatred and homelessness. Jesus tells us that if we're going to be his disciples, we better be prepared for rejection and lack of prosperity. He tells us that if we're going to get into the boat with him, that we have to reprioritize the relationships in our lives, even with our family, so that his, our relationship with him is so far supreme over all of the other relationships. And so Jesus looks at these men that want to follow after him. One who even says, Jesus, I want to go wherever you go. And he says to them, men, count the costs. You may lose your home over this. You may lose the place that you lay down at night over this. Your family and your friends may ask you to leave your hometown over this. You may lose everything you've lived your whole life for up until this point if you get into the boat. Count the costs. Verse 23 is remarkable because apparently there were men there that day that heard what Jesus said, heard the difficult words on discipleship, the words in which Jesus told them to count the cost, and they counted them, deemed Jesus worthy, and got into the boat. There were men that heard the difficult words of Jesus and said, I'll go. I'll still go. Knowing what you've said, heard, hearing what you've priest I will still get into the boat with you if it means I'm homeless I'm homeless if it means I lose everything I lose everything if it means that my I have to go away from my family for an extended period of time I will get into the boat with you and be honest with yourself this morning would you have gotten into the boat would you have gotten into the boat imagine a scenario with me imagine that you come forward forward this morning and you said that you were interested in being a member here at Iron City Baptist Church. Praise God, we had a fa the Downey family came last Sunday to me and said they are interested in being a member of Iron City Baptist Church. So imagine you've come and so I said, all right, well, let, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's, let's, let's have a conversation about what, what membership here means. And you, already, you all already know that we have very high expectations of membership here. And we, have, um, we, we, we place a very high priority on membership. And so imagine that you and I sat down to talk about membership. And I said, all right, if you join our church, the first thing that you're going to have to do is sell your house. And you need to donate all the proceeds from your house, all the profits from your house, to the ministries of the church, to the mission efforts of the church. And once you're finished with that, I'm going to need you to, to leave your work, your, your, your work. I'm going to need you to actually move to Africa, to Swaziland, for an undisclosed period of time to work in our orphanage there. 
Oh, and, and while you're in Swaziland, there's a great chance that you're going to face hostility there, and you're going to face persecution there. And so there's maybe some hungry nights while you're there. There may be some times where, where your kids don't really know where the next meal's coming from. There may be some nights where you go to bed and you can't sleep because you're afraid people are going to raid your house. Now, would you join? Would you join? This is a real world situation. If we put this into our context, if we put this into our world, this is exactly what Jesus is asking them to do. It seems crazy to us. Remember last week we talked about the nature of irrational faith. This seems completely irrational. If, I, if that was the standard of membership here, it would be me and me. Right? Who can hear such words? So this morning I ask you to evaluate your life. Are you really serious about getting into the boat with Jesus? Are you really serious about following after him? Are you really serious about counting the costs and being his disciples? Because what's the very first thing that happens when they get into the boat? Exactly what Jesus said would happen. Exactly what Jesus said would happen, right? Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. They get into the boat, they've done exactly as Jesus asked, they've, they've counted the cost, they've decided that they're, go, they're willing to follow Jesus everywhere, they've, they've deemed Jesus worthy of forsaking their entire life. They get into the boat and what is the very first thing that happens? A great storm comes. A great storm comes and it begins to, to swamp their boat, meaning the waves are crashing over the sides of the boat and the boat is, is rocking and so water is literally beginning to fill up the boat so much so that the boat would have felt though it was going to sink. Remember, many of the men that Jesus had in the boat that day were fishermen. These were men of the sea. These were men that knew how to handle a boat. And in this moment, they are terrified for their lives. See, I think a lot of the time, we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I have counted the cost. Jesus, I will in fact, I will indeed follow you wherever you go. I will, I am willing to forsake my life to come after you. But we don't exactly expect him to cost us, right? We don't really expect Jesus to take us up on it. Jesus, I want you to save me and I'm willing to go wherever you want me to go. Wait, you want me to go there? Seriously? You want me to do What? We tell him that we're willing to follow him to the ends of the earth. But we aren't, we, I think most of the time, we don't believe he'll actually take us up on it. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus is not easier, it's harder. It's not easier, it's harder. It's more difficult. It's always costly. I know that there are brothers and sisters all over this house this morning that could stand and talk about friends that you've lost over Jesus. You could stand and you could talk about money that you've lost because you had to stand, take a stand for your faith. Maybe you could talk about jobs that you had to walk away with from that paid more, opportunities that paid more, that you couldn't do because you knew it would compromise your faith. Some of you go home to a hostile husband every week, and yet you keep coming back so faithfully. You know about the costliness of discipleship, you know how bad it hurts. You know how hard it is. Following Jesus isn't easier, it's more difficult, it's harder. Recently, I was having 
a conversation with a close friend of mine, and the Lord has just done a spectacular work in his life and in his family's life. And so God has just been doing this incredible work, and yet he finds himself in the midst of a storm, and he says, Cody, I'm pursuing God in a way that I've never pursued him before in my life, and my life has never been harder than it is right now. I bet you that's the story all around this church this morning. I've watched. Praise God he's done a great work in us. Isn't that right? Praise God. I make eye contact with so many of you, and I know the pain that you're facing right now. And I know the pain that you've faced over the last year. I know I've, I've prayed with you, and I've prayed for you, and I've talked with you, and I've counseled with you. And I know it's been hard, and yet I watch, and you commit your life to Christ, and you pursue Christ, and you go after Christ, and you want more of Christ. And I wonder how many of you could identify with my friend and say, it's like the harder I go after Jesus, the harder it is for me. I committed my life, I've been baptized, I've been on mission trips, I've done all of the stuff. And like, back when I didn't care, back when I lived for myself, it seemed like life was easy, but now my life is on track, and it's like everything is falling apart. Don't you think that's how the disciples felt here? Jesus, I counted the cost. Jesus, I got into the boat with you. Jesus, I said I would go everywhere with you. Jesus, I left behind my family. I left behind my job. I left behind my 401k. Jesus, I'm in the boat, and the storm is fixing to capsize the boat. It's harder. This morning, if you're asking that question, if you're asking the question of why it gets so much harder when you follow after Jesus, I want you just to hold on to it for a little while, okay? We're going to come back to it at the end. I want, you, I want you to stay with it. I want you to hold fast to it. And after all, where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus in all of this? It's asleep. Now, this is some serious sleep. This is some serious sleep. I went to, on a mission trip to Salt Lake City, and Chris Johnson was in my room. And y'all, he and I are talking one second, and he is snoring the next. And I thought, if only my conscience was that clear. I wanted to sleep so bad. And yet I got to listen to this joker just saw logs. I mean, apparently Jesus had the same spiritual gift that Chris has. Now, and you got to understand in this day that the boats are small. There is no cabin underneath the deck, okay? Jesus didn't re retire to the, to the captain's quarters at the bottom of the half a million dollar yacht, okay? Jesus is sleeping on the stern of the boat, in the back of the boat, Mark's gospel says, on a cushion. So imagine this with me. Waves crashing, wind blowing, boats going up and down like this, rain falling. The boat is being swamped with water. All of the, the, the disciples in a frenzy, bailing water out of the boat and bailing water out of the boat. And Jesus is sound asleep. I'll have what he's having. There's not even ambient yet. And imagine you're the disciples. How would you feel? I, if this is me... I know me well enough to know that I'm looking at Jesus and I'm mad about it. I've followed after you. I've gotten into the boat with you and you're sleeping and I'm bailing water. You don't even care enough to help and be drowned awake with us. 
And Mark's gospel, apparently in the same account, it, it seems as though they are mad with him when they wake him up. Jesus, do you not even care? Do you not even care that we're all drowning? Do you not even care that we're in the midst of this violent storm? Do you not even care that our boat is being swamped? Do you not even care that we're having to bail water and it's coming in faster than we can get it out? Do you not care? A lot of the times when we're in the midst of violent storms, it seems like Jesus is sleeping, doesn't it? A lot of the times when we're facing the difficulties of life, when we're facing down the hardships of life, it feels like Jesus is nowhere to be found. It feels like Jesus is asleep on the stern. It feels like Jesus is unconcerned that we're bailing water as hard as we can bail water and losing the battle nonetheless. So the disciples go and they wake up Jesus. And Jesus' question is an interesting one. Jesus' response here is an interesting one. What does Jesus do? They wake Jesus up. Everybody's in a frenzy. Everybody's in a panic. And what is Matthew sure to point out to us? Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the storm. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the water in the boat. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge that their boat is being swamped and perhaps on the edge of capsizing. Instead it says, and then Jesus said, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Now, how in the world could Peter not be sarcastic in this moment? What do you mean, how, why am I afraid? I'm afraid because there's a storm and the boat's going under. Jesus, if there's ever a time in life to be afraid, this is a good one. You can imagine that the fishermen are looking at the carpenter and thinking, you know nothing about boats. You know nothing about storms. This is a perfectly, perfectly rational and reasonable time for us to be afraid. Yet Jesus answers his own question in the same, with a different clause in the same sentence. Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? See, Jesus' question to them could be phrased probably more accurately like this, more, more uh, literally like this. Why are you behaving as cowards? Why are you behaving as cowards? Why are you living as cowards? Jesus' question to his disciples is a, is a striking rebuke. It's a penetrating question to them. The word afraid here is only used three times in the whole New Testament. It's used in this account of the story, Mark's account of the same story, and then it's used in Revelation 21.6 when it says that people that are cowards, people that are idolaters, liars, murderers, will all be cast into the lake of fire. So Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's essentially asking them, how do you have the faith of an unbeliever? How are you living like a coward the way unbelievers live? Why are you living in the midst of the storm the same way and behaving the same way that an unbeliever would behave? Oh, you of little faith. Your faith is too small. Your faith is too weak. The character of your faith has been revealed in your fear. You see, what fear reveals in us is fear reveals unbelief. Fear reveals unbelief. The storm has revealed the unbelief of the disciples. They didn't really believe that Jesus was in control. The storm has revealed that they didn't really believe that he was supreme in authority over the storm. 
The storm has revealed that they didn't really believe that Jesus would sustain them and that Jesus would protect them and that Jesus would provide for them. You see, the violent storms of life are the testing ground of true faith. The violent storms of life are the testing ground of true faith. You want to know if your faith is real? Wait until the day that you get the layoff notice from work. You'll find out where your faith is that day. You want to know if your faith is real? Wait until you watch a sick child. Or you sit beside the bed of your dying husband. You'll learn the nature and the character of your faith that day. Want to know if your faith is true? Wait until your spouse checks out and says, I'll be back never. It's the violent storms of life that teach us the character of our faith. They provide for us the testing ground, that test, to see if our faith is true, to see if our faith is sincere. When you find yourself in the midst of the storm, what's your first reflex? Do you, be, do you respond, react any differently than an unbeliever would respond? Do you behave any differently than a non-believer would behave? Perhaps the violent storm has revealed your unbelief. Now compare Jesus' response to that of the disciples. The disciples are frenzied. The disciples are panicked. The disciples don't know whether they're coming or going. They believe that they are genuinely on the, on the threshold of death. They can see their life flashing before their eyes. They are in a moment so panicked that they can't even think logically or think rationally. But not Jesus. Jesus is asleep. Jesus is asleep. Jesus wakes up. And the first thing that he does is not even to acknowledge the storm. He doesn't even feel like that's so urgent that he has to talk about that right now. You can imagine that as Jesus speaks up, that the disciples are, are, are speaking over him. Jesus, this is no time for a sermon. Jesus, this is no time for a Bible lesson. This is no, no time for a teaching moment about faith. We're drowning here. We're dying here. But Jesus responds fearlessly, doesn't he? Jesus demonstrates fearlessness in the midst of the violent storm, in the midst of, of the capsizing boat, in the midst of the swamped boat. Jesus displays fearlessness. Jesus wasn't worried about what was going to happen to him. Jesus wasn't worried about what was going to happen to his disciples. Jesus was not worried about the situation. Jesus is not afraid. You see... In the midst of the violent storm, it's not that Jesus was unconcerned. Jesus wasn't sleeping because he was unconcerned. Jesus was sleeping because he was in control. Jesus comes, is awakened, and he doesn't speak to the storm because the storm is not a threat to him. The storm holds nothing over Jesus. Jesus is in authority over the wind. Jesus is in authority over the storm. Jesus is in authority over the whole situation. It's not out of control for him. It felt out of control to the disciples, but it was not out of control for Jesus. And so Jesus lives fearlessly, demonstrates a, a level of fearness, and his courage is rooted in his what? His courage is rooted in his authority. Remember, that's what Matthew's teaching us in Matthew 8. 
about the authority of Jesus. And Jesus isn't worried about the storm because Jesus is in authority over the storm. And Jesus isn't worried about the waves because Jesus is in authority over the waves. And Jesus isn't worried about the situation in your life and the violent storm in your life. And it may seem out of control to you, but it is perfectly under his control. You understand, brothers and sisters, we can live just as fearlessly as Jesus. Did you know that? You can live your life with the same degree of fearlessness that Jesus did. Why? Who are we, church? We are his people. We are united with Christ. We are one with Christ. We are his bride. We are his church. We are his chosen people. He will not let us fail. The storm is no threat to us. The Supreme Court is no threat to us. Oppression is no threat to us. The president is no threat to us. The most mighty military in the history of the world is no threat to the church because the military is under the authority of Christ. He is in control and unafraid. Recently, we've talked about a lot of difficult things as a church family. We've talked about leaving our family to go to the mission field. And I think some of you should. We've talked about adopting foster kids, or bringing foster kids into our homes. And, a, and it's a whole bunch of things that we don't know, and a whole bunch of, of potential issues that we would have to face. We've talked about adopting children, and we don't know their history, and we don't know their baggage, and we don't know their background. We've talked about sharing our faith in the job, at the job place. And we've talked about living as salt in our community in a way that is countercultural, that goes against the grain. Where do we find the courage to do all of that? Because if we're honest this morning, we know that to live as spiritual people in a secular world is going to bring violent storms upon us. Where do we find the courage to face down the culture? Where do we find the courage to live with grace in the midst of an ungracious culture? Where do we find the courage to stand for the truth in a culture that wants no part of it? Where do we find the courage? We look to Christ and know that it is all under Christ's authority and all under Christ's control and that he has not lost control of it for a second. The church finds her courage in the cross. That if Jesus can do a work that is so mighty, a work that is so powerful, a work that is so miraculous as to deliver wretches like you and I from our sin, then there is nothing that he can't do in all of the cosmos. So this morning, brothers and sisters, look to the cross. Find courage. How would you live for Jesus if you were fearless? If you were not afraid... If you were not afraid of the ramifications, if you were not afraid about what your family would say, if you were not afraid of where the money would come from, if you were not afraid about where you would live, if you're not afraid about how your kids would do, if you're not afraid, if you were fearless, how would you live for Jesus? Who would hear the gospel that's not hearing it right now? What children would be taken care of that are completely uncared for right now? What orphan would be adopted? What hungry mouth would be fed? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And the laborers are few, I believe, brothers and sisters, because the laborers are afraid. How would you live 
what would you do for the gospel if you were fearless? This morning, do that. Do that. The church has the courage. The church has the valor of Jesus. We are united with him, and there is nothing that can be a threat to him. What does Jesus do? Jesus speaks to the storm. He speaks to the storm. He says, be still. And the storm sits down like a disciplined child. You know, violent storms, they're the testing ground of true faith. But that's not all they are. Violent storms also are the proving ground of God's faithfulness. The proving ground of God's faithfulness. They test our faith, but they prove God's faithfulness. How can you really know the protection of God if you've never experienced it? How can you really know the provision of God if you've never seen it? How can you really know the peace that goes beyond all understanding if you've never been in a situation in which you need the peace that goes beyond all understanding? Iron City Baptist Church, let's not be afraid of the storms. Don't be afraid of the storms this morning. Instead, look for the faithfulness of God. Look for the faithful hand of God. Wait to see how he demonstrates his goodness, demonstrates his care, demonstrates his protection, and demonstrates his provision. What did the disciples do? The disciples weren't killed. The disciples didn't die. Instead, the disciples were left marveling. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, right now, you live fearlessly. You live as a spiritual person in a secular world. You face down the culture. You live in a way that brings the violent storms into your life. You live in a way that causes your faith to be tested. And I'm telling you, one day you will tell the story of God's faithfulness. One day, maybe it's to your grandchildren around the table. Maybe it's to the praise of Christ at his own judgment seat. But you will tell the story about your stand for Christ and the provision of God when you thought it was impossible. You will tell the story about how he sustained you through trouble in your family. You'll tell the story about the word that he did to get you to the mission field and how he sustained you there. You'll tell the story about how he provided for you even though you did have to take a different job or even though you did have to lose off on a small fortune. You'll tell the story of what it was like to experience God's faithfulness firsthand so that you can say with Job, I had heard of God's faithfulness, but now I have seen it. You'll be left marveling. You'll be left marveling. Following Jesus is harder. But brothers and sisters, it is still better. It is still better. It is worth it. It is worth it. What's holding you down? What's holding you back? Where in your life do you need to remind yourself of the sovereign authority of God? Where in your life do you need to remind yourself of the gracious love of God? Where in your, in your life do you need to remind yourself that those that are in the hand of God cannot be plucked out of it? Preach to yourself this morning. Preach to yourself this morning. As soon as they get to the other side, what do the disciples face? The Bible says they face two men there. Face two men that are known, they're they are possessed by demons. 
and being possessed by demons. Demons, They are violent men and known to be so violent that all of the other community is afraid to go where they are. And so if you lived in their community, you, you just knew that you were going a different way. That you were not going through the cemetery. You were not going to go where these demon-possessed men were because they might injure you. They might hurt you. And so it just so happens, right, providentially, that Jesus' boat docks right at the graveyard, apparently. Everybody else is afraid. Everybody else is, they, they know the reputation of these men. They know the violence that these men can bring. And where does Jesus go? Right there. Right there. If you're reading Matthew as an original reader, you think, okay, this may be where Jesus goes down. This may be where Jesus goes down. This may be where Jesus takes one on the lip right here. Jesus is walking away with a shiner right here. Jesus doesn't know what he just crashed his boat into. But it's not Jesus that's afraid, is it? Jesus, again, is fearless. Instead, who is afraid? The demons. The demons. Jesus isn't afraid. The demons are. The demons are left trembling. It's so awesome the way that the Bible, uh, the way the Bible phrases this. It says in, uh, in verse 29, And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You know what the demons are saying? Jesus, don't pick on us. Leave us alone. Jesus, and, and they're making reference to something that Matthew will say in verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 41. In chapter 25, verse 41, it talks about how the demons have already lost, and at the time they will be burned in the fire. They'll be tormented, in other words. And so, so the demons come up to Jesus... Remember, this is a carpenter, all right? This is a guy with a couple of fishermen, a rag. This is not a military, okay? This is not an army that just docked on their banks. The demons look at him and say, Jesus, would you just leave us alone, please? Don't, don't torment us before the time. We already know that we're defeated. We already know that we're going down. But could you just leave us alone right now? Could you just kind of let us do our own thing? Don't torment us before the time. Do you see the picture here? Jesus isn't just in authority over everything that you can see. Jesus isn't just in authority over the winds. Jesus isn't just in authority over the sea. Jesus isn't just in authority over the storm. Jesus is in authority over the world that is beyond your vision. Jesus is in authority over the world that you can't see. He's just as much authority there as he is right here. That Jesus' authority is not limited by space. It's not confined by boundaries. It goes upward as far as upward can go. It goes downward as far as downward can go. It goes backward and it goes forward. It's in yesterday and it's in tomorrow. Jesus reigns. Jesus is in authority. Jesus is in control of every world that ever existed. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Just to the right, just a couple of pages. Do you realize there's a whole world that you can't see? Do you realize that? How often do you think about that? Listen to what Ephesians 6 says. We'll read verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against the Supreme Court. Y'all understand? Our battle is not against a president. Our battle is not against even our culture. Our battle is against demons. It's against a world. It's against principalities. This is against the prince of darkness. It's the ruler of the, the darkness of the cosmos. Our battle is against him. If we're honest, it's terrifying to think about, isn't it? It's terrifying until you realize that that whole world is trembling at the name of Jesus. Trembling. Trembling. They're afraid of him. The demons know who he is and they tremble. Satan trembles. The demons cry out to him and say, don't pick on us yet. Leave us alone. We live in a fearsome world, don't we? We live in a fearsome world. We live in a world that we have no idea what our children and grandchildren may face one day. We live in a world that we don't know if preaching the gospel truth will someday be a hate crime. We live in a world with uncertainty that tries to redefine what has already been defined. We live in a culture that is becoming increasingly secular and increasingly pagan. Hostility is coming. All those who desire to live a, a, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But brothers and sisters, because the demons tremble at his name, because the prince of darkness has to get his permission to do anything. They have no power over us. And we can live fearlessly in a fearsome world as the children of God. Our victory has already been secured. So as we face down the storms of this life. As we face down the difficulties of this life. As we face down the oppression of a culture. As we face down things that are beyond our understanding. Let us remember God has not lost control. Instead all of the enemy is trembling at the sight of him. And at the mention of his name. Earlier we talked about. Why is it that. As we begin to pursue Christ more and more and more. Our life seems to get harder and harder and harder. I want to come back to there now. Why is that? It's because the demons are afraid of you. The demons are afraid of what Christ is doing in you. You now represent a gospel threat. A gospel threat. When you were doing what you wanted to do, when you were living for yourself, when you were going about your own business, living according to your own desires, you were no threat to the enemy. But you turn your heart to Christ... And the harder you run after him, and the more and more frightened they become. The gospel is good news to the sinner that can be redeemed, but it is bad news to the demons that are already condemned. This morning, there are men and women in this church that are breaking family cycles. You're breaking family cycles. You're breaking cycles of unfaithfulness and hypocrisy and godlessness in your family that goes back generations. Satan had you. He had you. Your family, he had you. And now you have resolved by the power of the gospel and the grace of God to break that family cycle. And you are a gospel threat, not just now, but for every generation that comes after you. He's going to come after you, brothers and sisters. He's going to come after our church. 
We're starting a partnership with the Mixtec people in Mexico. They're an unreached people group, meaning less than 2% of them have ever trusted in the gospel of Jesus. Dating back centuries, Satan has had a stronghold there. Dating back centuries, Satan has had them exactly where he wanted them to be. And you know what we're going to do, Iron City? We're going to put a church right there. Right there. And it's going to be a gospel threat to the enemy. It's going to be a gospel threat. And so he's going to come after us. There are some of you on the edge of quitting addiction. Satan's had you in bondage. He's had you in chains. And you're on the edge. Man, you're pursuing Jesus and he's done a great work in your life. And now he's coming after you and he's coming after you. Why? You're a gospel threat. But we can live fearlessly. We can live fearlessly. Because he's scared. And Jesus isn't afraid. He isn't afraid. And those of us that claim his name, those of us that are his chosen people can stand on the gospel. And we can stand and we can proclaim that the demons are trembling at the sight of his name and press on and press on and press on to know that one day we will tell the story of God's faithfulness in spite of the storm. Notice how the demons address him. They address him as, O son of God. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we have heard Jesus expressly called the Messiah. And who identifies him? The demons. James 2.9 says that the demons believe and yet they tremble. Because they know that he has already defeated them. And they know that they are condemned because even in spite of their belief in him. And I ask you this morning as we close. What separates you, your belief from that of the demons? What separates your relationship to Jesus from that relationship that the demons have? Let us pray.